Welcome into the Hail Mary podcast every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. Today is March 4th, and on this episode, we will be talking college conference tournaments, a little bit of NHL talk as postseason wildcard races continue to heat up, Steve Ballmer making big moves to try and buy the forum in Los Angeles, and plenty more. Starting off the show with college hockey talk. Just like basketball, conference tournaments begin this week. The conferences in hockey include the Atlantic, Big Ten, ECAC, East, NCHC, and WCHA. And how it all works is the winners of each respective conference earn bids to the college hockey tournament. And then the 10 remaining spots are filled by at-large bids, which are made up of the best teams aside from the conference champions. And selections are as soon as March 22nd, which means we can begin to assume the tournament field. The top four in college hockey this season has been extremely consistent in regards to the USCHO national poll. We saw some variation of Cornell, North Dakota, Minnesota State Mankato, and Boston College. Important to know what we saw in the later parts of the season from Minnesota Duluth. They proved to everyone and themselves that they can win big games, including their series split against North Dakota. They swept Denver, split a series with Western Michigan, and outside of that, won all of their must-win games. And not necessarily a storyline with Duluth in terms of the conference tournament, but in the college hockey tournament, they're looking to make history History that hasn't been done since the 1951 through 53 seasons by Michigan, and that's to win their third consecutive national championship. So eager to see how things play out for them. Back in regards to the conference tournaments, though, I predict powerhouses like North Dakota to come out of the NCHC with the title. Same with Mankato and the WCHA and Cornell and the ECAC. If we're talking big storylines in the conference tournaments, It'll be crucial to see how the Big Ten quarterfinals in Minneapolis play out. That's going to be a matchup between Notre Dame, the Fighting Irish, and a very, very young Gophers team. But what we're going to see in that matchup is two teams that are on the bubble playing field for an at-large bid, which doesn't exist in any of the six other conferences heading into the weekend. Switching gears now, still on the topic of conference tournaments, but it's men's and women's basketball. Ten days until Selection Sunday for men's basketball, and the season isn't over yet, so here's some notes before we approach the end of the season at the end of the week. I want to start out with number 7 Florida State, who is chasing their first regular season title in program history. What we're going to be seeing from them from now, Wednesday, until... Saturday, which is just a couple of days away, is going to be crucial in where they fall in terms of chasing that regular season title. Tonight, they take on Notre Dame and Boston College this Saturday, and if they're able to come out with two wins there, they can potentially make the push over Louisville to win their first regular season title in program history. And also a team that can do big-time damage in the postseason. Turning things over to the Big Ten now with Purdue, They've been an incredible team to watch all season long. I've caught some of their big-time upset wins this season over, most recently, the Hawkeyes, of course, Virginia, Michigan State, and so forth. But with this team, the reason why I note them is the absurdity of their inconsistencies. 
makes it so hard to gauge how they're going to look in the postseason heat. In essence, if you're looking just at the back end of the season, it's not looking too hot. But when you consider them in their entirety and what they've been able to accomplish this season, this is a team that can definitely do damage to pretty much anyone you see on the tournament field. Another note I have is in regards to one of my tournament champion picks, Kansas. And this one is all in regards to Azabuki's ankle. He said he's going to play tonight, and depending on when you listen to this, they're slated to face TCU tonight, Wednesday. But with Azabuki, everyone knows that his career has been plagued by injury, so it'll be important to see how he recovers, how he shows up in this game, if he's going to have any chance to take some time to heal and maybe lay off the ankle, but it's very tough to do when you consider what the rest of their season looks like. They didn't put themselves in a position where they can have a guy like Azabuki just sit on the bench, if at all possible not to. If they have a victory tonight against TCU, they can clinch a share, and then if they win on Saturday against Texas Tech, they can win it outright. So we'll see how that all plays out. Now for women's basketball, on Monday the 16th seed predictions were released by the NCAA and we didn't see too much variation in terms of the three number one seeds but still a lot of movement so in the Dallas regional you have number one Baylor, number two Stanford, number three Mississippi State and Iowa. In the Greenville regional, number one South Carolina of course, number two UCLA, NC State, Oregon State. In the Portland Regional, you have number one Oregon, of course, Yukon, of course, then Northwestern and DePaul. And in the Fort Wayne Regional, making up the rest of the 16, it's number one Maryland, Louisville, Gonzaga, and Arizona. When it comes to women's basketball this season, you know all the years that UConn women's basketball was as dominant as it was, and there wasn't really any competition when you're looking at who's going to win the national championship. Of course, different story when you're talking about conference championships. But this season, I am entirely inclined to completely skip the conference tournaments. And I love any Big 12 basketball tournament. But every women's basketball fan knows that Baylor, the Baylor Lady Bears this season, are probably not going to face any legitimate competition in the postseason. They did retire a lot of players that were key in last year's national championship. Mind you, they are looking for a two-peat in national championships. This team is just even deeper than before, and they have incredible size. Of course, Kim Mulkey, who was already voted in to the Basketball Hall of Fame just a couple of weeks ago. There's just nothing wrong with this Baylor women's basketball team. You have to see them on the court. If you know the identity of Baylor women's basketball, its size. It's getting the points in the paint. It's having like two or three people in the lineup that are capable beyond the arc. This season it's Juicy Landrum who's big time beyond the arc along with Tia Cooper. Landrum has 54 three-pointers. Cooper has 53. And let me just shift gears on the stat sheet here. When you're talking about just field goals, Queen Egbo leads with a 602 field goal percentage and then Melissa Smith with a nine, with a 593. I want to paint a picture for you what that all looks like. So I just named off their leading scores beyond the arc. Tia Cooper, she's 5'8", 
you have Juicy Landrum, who's 5'8", and Trinity Oliver, who's 5'9". Everyone beyond that is above 6 feet. So you have 6'2", 6'1", 6'6", 6'3", 6'4". It's truly a game in the paint, and not a lot of basketball teams can shape up to that, especially when you add insane coaching on top of it. So this season, it's not even a question for me. I'll give you my downright pick. Baylor's going to win it all. They're going to two-peat it, and it's going to be an incredible year for the Big 12. All right, let's talk some NHL. We're at that point in the season where each team has about a range of 14 to 18 games left to play, I want to say. At least those are that are in contention. With that, the wildcard races are at an all-time high, specifically in the Western Conference, because you have three teams that are knocking on the door and teams that play each other consistently. So in the Western Conference, you have the Vancouver Canucks and the Winnipeg Jets that currently hold the two wildcard spots. In the Eastern Conference, it's the Columbus Blue Jackets and the New York Islanders. Over in the hunt for the Western Conference, you have the Minnesota Wild who trail Winnipeg for that second and final wildcard spot by a point. You have Nashville who just lost to the Wild on Tuesday, trailing Winnipeg by two points. And then you have Arizona trailing Winnipeg by two points. Next in line is Chicago trailing by six points. Of course, there's 16 games remaining for Chicago. So in that respect, anything can happen. Beyond that, San Jose's trailing a wildcard spot by 12 points, and they have a tough end to their regular season. So I would say that things are going to get pretty hot between the Minnesota, Nashville, Arizona, and Chicago teams. And it's insane that it's coming down, at least at this point, it's coming down to Minnesota and Nashville trying to catch up to Winnipeg for that final spot because it's Minnesota and Nashville who had one of the biggest trades of the trade deadline on February 25th when Nashville traded Kevin Fiala to the Wild and the Wild traded Granlin. The only reason that Minnesota is in the position they are is because of Fiala and what he's been able to do for the team since being traded over. He's currently on his fifth consecutive game scoring one or more points for the Wild. On Tuesday when the Wild and Predators faced each other, it was Kevin Fiala that had that connection with Ryan Suter to help elevate the team in a very crucial wild card face-off. So if you're looking at how things will be moving forward to the rest of the season, I want to say that that trade is going to be huge and it looks like Minnesota just continues to climb the rails with their brand new offense. Assuming that the race stays just as tight between Minnesota and Nashville, Nashville has a significantly tougher schedule than Minnesota to close out the regular season, but still plenty of time to go. Now transitioning to the Eastern Conference. In the hunt to try and chase the final two wildcard spots, you have Carolina trailing Columbus by three points, the Rangers trailing by four points, Florida trailing by five points, Montreal trailing by seven points, and the next closest team in the hunt is Buffalo trailing by 12 points. The edge that Carolina has in this position is they have 18 games remaining. The Rangers only have 16, Florida with 16, and Montreal with 14. In addition to that, when you're looking at the quality of teams that 
Carolina is going to be facing towards the end of the season. I would say there's about 12 quality teams compared to the Rangers who have about 14 or 15. With the caliber of all three of those teams, Carolina, the Rangers, Florida, I would say they have an equal chance at chasing that final spot. I could see Columbus dropping off, although it will come down to those quality teams that they have to face at the end of the season. Transitioning now to, in my opinion, one of the biggest storylines to come out of the sports world outside of contract extensions, outside of free agency, and that's the Los Angeles Clippers owner Steve Ballmer showing immense interest in buying the Forum from the Madison Square Garden Company. And you're not mistaken, I'm talking about the Forum that was rebuilt in 2013, the Forum that housed the Lakers, the Showtime Lakers, might I mention, and the Kings from 1967 to 1999, and then both teams afterward left to go play in Staples Center. Clearly right now, I mentioned that 2013 renovation because that's when the Forum became more of a music facility rather than a sports arena because you don't have the suites, you don't have other important assets to housing a professional team. Of course, just like when the Chargers came to LA, this entire time that the Clippers have been LA, there's a lot of pushback from the core of LA fans not wanting the Clippers to have the same stadium or arena as the Lakers. And now for the Clippers not to take down a piece of history, a piece of LA history, a significant landmark to be taken over by the Clippers. Once this news broke, I spent a majority of time talking to people about why this is a horrible idea in the current climate of Los Angeles because of all of the sports teams that are moving, all of the renovations that are being had, and there's still not a fundamental fan base for a lot of these teams besides the Lakers, the Dodgers, the Kings, all of those staple LA teams that have had a long time existence in the heart of LA. Although on the flip side, I do understand what this means for the longevity of LA. You already have these teams in LA, and I think it would be more beneficial in the long run once these teams have their own respective success. You have the Clippers that are going to have more success than the Lakers are gonna have with their current Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. So once these kids that are up and coming are seeing all of this talent be accrued to the Clippers, you're going to establish a stronger fan base. With the way that the NBA specifically is and how each team has a trio of talent, that's more likely to happen in a player's league and less likely to happen for football. And you can tell with the current state of the Chargers and how they're barely drawing enough people to sell out a soccer stadium. So in the grand scheme of things, I understand that decision to try and create a singular identity for the Clippers in LA as things only continue to go upward for that franchise. Although when you're involving the forum that holds so much history for a lot of people that are currently alive and got to live through those glory days from 1967 to 1999, I completely understand the pushback. And I'm probably a little less reluctant to it because I didn't live early enough to be able to see what was produced in the forum during those years. 
The more that I look at what this deal would entail, it's a $1.2 billion arena project that would increase to an 18,500-seat arena. It would anchor a 22-anchor sports and entertainment complex. It would have the Clippers headquarters within the building and so forth. I'm starting to see the reality of this happening, especially because it's going to be privately funded and no taxpayer dollars are going to be involved, which is how Stan Kroenke had so much success bringing a brand new football stadium to Inglewood. Therefore, with all of that, it's not worth my time to be reluctant to it and to push it away, but I do understand the pushback. And it'll be interesting to see. I mean, LA is finally doing it right. They're acquiring all of these different franchises. How are they going to go about making it so each team has their own identity and one isn't overpowered by the other? And from a marketing standpoint, from a league standpoint, they're doing so correctly and they're finally having these investors come in and actually fund these projects and LA is going to be quite the scene in the next 10 years. All right, with that, that'll do it for this edition of the Hail Mary podcast. As always, on Wednesdays on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. Until next week, this is the Hail Mary podcast. I'm Mary Rominger. <laughs>